Master Humphrey's Clock, Section 3. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Master Humphrey's Clock by Charles Dickens, Section 3. Chapter 2. Master Humphrey from his clock-side in the chimney-corner. My old companion tells me it is midnight. The fire glows brightly, crackling with a sharp and cheerful sound, as if it loved to burn. The merry cricket on the hearth, my constant visitor, this ruddy blaze, my clock and I, seem to share the world among us, and to be the only things awake. The wind, high and boisterous but now, has died away and hoarsely mutters in its sleep. I love all times and seasons each in its turn, and am apt, perhaps, to think the present one the best. But past or coming I always love this peaceful time of night, when long-buried thoughts favoured by the gloom and silence steal from their graves and haunt the scenes of fated happiness and hope. The popular faith in ghosts has a remarkable affinity with the whole current of our thoughts at such an hour as this, and seems to be their necessary and natural consequence. For who can wonder that man should feel a vague belief in tales of disembodied spirits wandering through those places which they once dearly affected, when he himself, scarcely less separated from his old world than they, is for ever lingering upon past emotions and bygone times, and hovering the ghost of his former self about the places and people that warmed his heart of old. It is thus that at this quiet hour I haunt the house where I was born, the rooms I used to tread, the scenes of my infancy, my boyhood, and my youth. It is thus that I prowl around my buried treasure, though not of gold or silver, and mourn my loss. It is thus that I revisit the ashes of extinguished fires, and take my silent stand at old bedsides. If my spirit should ever glide back to this chamber when my body is mingled with the dust, it will but follow the course it often took in the old man's lifetime, and add but one more change to the subjects of its contemplation. In all my idle speculations I am greatly assisted by various legends connected with my venerable house, which are current in the neighbourhood, and are so numerous that there is scarce a cupboard or corner that has not some dismal story of its own. When I first entertained thoughts of becoming its tenant, I was assured that it was haunted from roof to cellar, and I believe that the bad opinion in which my neighbours once held me had its rise in my not being torn to pieces, or at least distracted with terror, on the night I took possession. In either of which cases I should doubtless have arrived by a short cut at the very summit of popularity. But traditions and rumours all taken into account, whoso abets me in every fancy and chimes with my every thought as my dear deaf friend, and how often have I cause to bless the day that brought us two together. Of all days in the year, I rejoice to think that it should have been Christmas Day, with which from childhood we associate something friendly, hearty, and sincere. I had walked out to cheer myself with the happiness of others, 
and in little tokens of festivity and rejoicing, of which the streets and houses present so many upon that day, had lost some hours. Now I stopped to look at a merry party, hurrying through the snow on foot to their place of meeting, and now turned back to see a whole coachful of children safely deposited at the welcome house. At one time I admired how carefully the working man carried the baby in its gaudy hat and feathers, and how his wife, trudging patiently on behind, forgot even her care of her gay clothes in exchanging greeting with the child as it crowed and laughed over the father's shoulder. At another I pleased myself with some passing scene of gallantry or courtship, and was glad to believe that for a season half the world of poverty was gay. As the day closed in, I still rambled through the streets, feeling a companionship in the bright fires that cast their warm reflection on the windows as I passed, and losing all sense of my own loneliness in imagining the sociality and kind fellowship that everywhere prevailed. At length I happened to stop before a tavern, and encountering a bill of fare in the window, it all at once brought it into my head to wonder what kind of people dined alone in taverns upon Christmas Day. Solitary men are accustomed, I suppose, unconsciously to look upon solitude as their own peculiar property. I had sat alone in my room on many, many anniversaries of this great holiday, and had never regarded it but as one of universal assemblage and rejoicing. I had expected, and with an aching heart, a crowd of prisoners and beggars, but these were not the men for whom the tavern doors were open. Had they any customers, or was it a mere form? A form, no doubt. Trying to feel quite sure of this, I walked away, but before I had gone many paces I stopped and looked back. There was a provoking air of business in the lamp above the door which I could not overcome. I began to be afraid that there might be many customers, young men, perhaps, struggling with the world, utter strangers in this great place, whose friends lived at a long distance off, and whose means were too slender to enable them to make the journey. The supposition gave rise to so many distressing little pictures, that in preference to carrying them home with me, I determined to encounter the realities. So I turned and walked in. I was at once glad and sorry to find that there was only one person in the dining-room, glad to know that there were not more, and sorry that he should be there by himself. He did not look so old as I, but like me he was advanced in life and his hair was nearly white. Though I made more noise in entering and seating myself than was quite necessary, with the view of attracting his attention and saluting him in the good old form of that time of year, he did not raise his head, but sat with it resting on his hand, musing over his half-finished meal. I called for something which would give me an excuse for remaining in the room. I had dined early, as my housekeeper was engaged at night to partake of some friend's good cheer, and sat where I could observe without intruding on him. After a time he looked up. He was aware that somebody had entered but could see very little of me, as I sat in the shade and he in the light. He was sad and thoughtful, and I forbore to trouble him by speaking. Let me believe it was something better than curiosity which riveted my attention and impelled me strongly towards this gentleman. 
I never saw so patient and kind a face. He should have been surrounded by friends, and yet here he sat, dejected and alone, when all men had their friends about them. As often as he roused himself from his reverie, he would fall into it again, and it was plain that, whatever were the subject of his thoughts, they were of a melancholy kind, and would not be controlled. He was not used to solitude. I was sure of that, for I know by myself that if he had been, his manner would have been very different, and he would have taken some slight interest in the arrival of another. I could not fail to mark that he had no appetite, that he tried to eat in vain, that time after time the plate was pushed away, and he relapsed into his former posture. His mind was wandering among old Christmas days, I thought many of them sprung up together not with a long gap between each but in unbroken succession like days of the week it was a great change to find himself for the first time i quite settled that it was the first in an empty silent room with no soul to care for i could not help following him in imagination through crowds of pleasant faces and then coming back to that dull place with its bough of mistletoe sickening in the gas and sprigs of holly parched up already by a samoom of roast and boiled the very waiter had gone home and his representative a poor lean hungry man was keeping christmas in his jacket i grew still more interested in my friend his dinner done a decanter of wine was placed before him it remained untouched for a long time but at length with a quivering hand he filled a glass and raised it to his lips. Some tender wish to which he had been accustomed to gave utterance on that day, or some beloved name that he had been used to pledge trembled upon them at the moment. He put it down very hastily, took it up once more, again put it down, pressed his hand upon his face, yes, and tears strolled down his cheeks, I am certain without pausing to consider whether i did right or wrong i stepped across the room and sitting down beside him laid my hand gently on his arm my friend i said forgive me if i beseech you to take comfort and consolation from the lips of an old man i will not preach to you what i have not practised indeed whatever be your grief be of a good heart be of a good heart pray i see that you speak earnestly he replied and kindly, I am very sure, but—I nodded my head to show that I understood what he would say, for I had already gathered from a certain fixed expression in his face, and from the attention with which he watched me while I spoke, that his sense of hearing was destroyed. "'There should be a freemasonry between us,' said I, pointing from himself to me to explain my meaning, if not in our grey hairs, at least in our misfortunes. You see that I am but a poor cripple.' i never felt so happy under my affliction since the trying moment of my first becoming conscious of it as when he took my hand in his with a smile that has lighted my path in life from that day and we sat down side by side this was the beginning of my friendship with the deaf gentleman and when was ever the slight and easy service of a kind word in season repaid by such attachment and devotion as he has shown to me he produced a little set of tables and a pencil to facilitate our conversation on that our first acquaintance and i well remember how awkward and constrained i was in writing down my share of the dialogue and how easily he guessed my meaning before i had written half of what i had to say 
he told me in a faltering voice that he had not been accustomed to be alone on that day that it had always been a little festival with him and seeing that i glanced at his dress in the expectation that he wore mourning he added hastily that it was not that if it had been he thought he could have borne it better from that time to the present we have never touched upon this theme upon every return of the same day we have been together and although we make it our annual custom to drink to each other in hand after dinner and to recall with affectionate garrulity every circumstance of our first meeting we always avoid this one as if by mutual consent meantime we have gone on strengthening in our friendship and regard and forming an attachment which i trust and believe will only be interrupted by death to be renewed in another existence i scarcely know how we communicate as we do but he has long since ceased to be deaf to me he is frequently my companion in my walks and even in crowded streets replies to my slightest look or gesture as though he could read my thoughts from the vast number of objects which pass in rapid succession before our eyes we frequently select the same for some particular notice or remark and when one of these little coincidences occurs i cannot describe the pleasure which animates my friend or the beaming countenance he will preserve for half an hour afterwards at least he is a great thinker from living so much within himself and having a lively imagination has a facility of conceiving and enlarging upon odd ideas which renders him invaluable to our little body and greatly astonishes our two friends his powers in this respect are much assisted by a large pipe which he assures us once belonged to a german student be this as it may it has undoubtedly a very ancient and mysterious appearance and is of such capacity that it takes three hours and a half to smoke it out i have reason to believe that my barber who is the chief authority of a knot of gossips who congregate every evening at a small tobacconist hard by has related anecdotes of this pipe and the grim figures that are carved upon its bowl at which all the smokers in the neighbourhood have stood aghast and i know that my housekeeper when she holds it in high veneration has a superstitious feeling connected with it which would render her exceedingly unwilling to be left alone in its company after dark whatever sorrow my dear friend has known and whatever grief may linger in some secret corner of his heart he is now a cheerful placid happy creature misfortune can never have fallen upon such a man but for some good purpose and when i see its traces in his gentle nature and his earnest feeling i am the less disposed to murmur at such trials as i may have undergone myself with regard to the pipe i have a theory of my own i cannot help thinking that it is in some manner connected with the event that brought us together for i remember that it was a long time before he even talked about it and when he did he grew reserved and melancholy and that it was a long time yet before he brought it forth i have no curiosity however upon this subject for i know that it promotes his tranquillity and comfort and i need no other inducement to regard it with my utmost favour such is the deaf gentleman i can call up his figure now clad in sober grey and seated in the chimney-corner as he puffs out the smoke from his favourite pipe he casts a look on me brimful of cordiality and friendship and says all manner of kind and genial things in a cheerful smile 
then he raises his eyes to my clock which is just about to strike and glancing from it to me and back again seems to divide his heart between us for myself it is not too much to say that i would gladly part with one of my poor limbs could he but hear the old clock's voice of our two friends the first has been all his life one of that easy wayward truant class whom the world is accustomed to designate as nobody's enemies but their own bred to a profession for which he never qualified himself and reared in the expectation of a fortune he has never inherited he has undergone every vicissitude of which such an existence is capable he and his younger brother both orphans from their childhood were educated by a wealthy relative who taught them to expect an equal division of his property but too indolent to court and too honest to flatter the elder gradually lost ground in the affections of a capricious old man, and the younger, who did not fail to improve his opportunity, now triumphs in the possession of enormous wealth. His triumph is to hoard it in solitary wretchedness, and probably to feel with the expenditure of every shilling a greater pang than the loss of his whole inheritance ever cost his brother. Jack Redburn he was Jack Redbird at the first little school he went to, where every other child was mastered and surnamed, and he has been Jack Redburn all his life, or he would perhaps have been a richer man by this time, has been an inmate of my house these eight years past. He is my librarian, secretary, steward, and first minister, director of all my affairs, and inspector general of my household. He is something of a musician, something of an author, something of an actor, something of a painter, very much of a carpenter, and an extraordinary gardener, having had all his life a wonderful aptitude for learning everything that was of no use to him. He is remarkably fond of children, and is the best and kindest nurse in sickness that ever drew the breath of life. He has mixed with every grade of society, and known the utmost distress, but there never was a less selfish or more tender-hearted a more enthusiastic or a more guileless man and i dare say if few have done less good fewer still have done less harm in the world than he but what chance nature forms such whimsical jumbles i don't know but i do know that she sends them among us very often and that the king of the whole race is jack redburn i should be puzzled to say how old he is his health is none of the best and he wears a quantity of iron-grey hair which shades his face and gives it rather a worn appearance but we consider him quite a young fellow notwithstanding and if a youthful spirit surviving the roughest contact with the world confers upon its possessor any title to be considered young then he is a mere child the only interruptions to his careless cheerfulness are on a wet sunday when he is apt to be unusually religious and solemn and sometimes of an evening when he has been blowing a very slow tune on the flute of these last-named occasions he is apt to incline towards the mysterious or the terrible as a specimen of his powers in this mood i refer my readers to the extract from the clock-case which follows his paper he brought it to me not long ago at midnight, and informed me that the main incident has been suggested by a dream of the night before. 
His apartments are two cheerful rooms, looking towards the garden, and one of his great delights is to arrange and rearrange the furniture in these chambers, and put it in every possible variety of position. During the whole time he has been here, I do not think he has slept for two nights running with the head of his bed in the same place, and every time he moves it is to be the last. My housekeeper was at first well-nigh distracted by these frequent changes, but she has become quite reconciled to them by degrees, and has so fallen in with his humour that they often consult together with great gravity upon the next final alteration. Whatever his arrangements are, however, they are always a pattern of neatness, and every one of the manifold articles connected with his manifold occupations is to be found in its own particular place until within the last two or three years he was subject to an occasional fit which usually came upon him in very fine weather under the influence of which he would dress himself with peculiar care and going out under pretence of taking a walk disappeared for several days together at length after the interval between each outbreak of the disorder had gradually grown larger and larger it wholly disappeared and now he seldom stirs abroad except to stroll out a little way on a summer's evening whether he yet mistrusts his own company in this respect and is therefore afraid to wear a coat i know not but we seldom see him in any other upper garment than an old spectral-looking dressing-gown with very disproportionate pockets full of a miscellaneous collection of odd matters which he picks up wherever he can lay his hands upon them everything that is a favourite with our friend is a favourite with us and thus it happens that the fourth among us is mr owen miles a most worthy gentleman who had treated jack with great kindness before my deaf friend and i encountered him by an accident to which i may refer on some future occasion mr miles was once a very rich merchant but receiving a severe shock at the death of his wife he retired from business and devoted himself to a quiet unostentatious life he is an excellent man of thoroughly sterling character not of quick apprehension and not without some amusing prejudices which i shall leave to their own development he holds us all in profound veneration but jack redburn he esteems as a kind of pleasant wonder that he may venture to approach familiarly. He believes not only that no man ever lived who could do so many things as Jack, but that no man ever lived who could do anything so well. And he never calls my attention to any of his ingenious proceedings, but he whispers in my ear, nudging me at the same time with his elbow. If he had only made it his trade, sir, if he had only made it his trade they are inseparable companions one would almost suppose that although mr miles never by any chance does anything in the way of assistance jack could do nothing without him whether he is reading writing painting carpentering gardening flute-playing or what not there is mr miles beside him buttoned up to the chin in his blue coat and looking on with a face of incredulous delight as though he could not credit the testimony of his own senses, and had a misgiving that no man could be so clever but in a dream. These are my friends. I have now introduced myself and them. THE CLOCK-CASE 
A Confession Found in a Prison in the Time of Charles the Second. I held a lieutenant's commission in His Majesty's Army, and served abroad in the campaigns of 1677 and 1678. The Treaty of Nijmegen being concluded, I returned home, and retiring from the service, withdrew to a small estate lying a few miles east of London, which I had recently acquired in right of my wife. This is the last night I have to live, and I will set down the naked truth without disguise. I was never a brave man, and had always been from my childhood of a secret, sullen, distrustful nature. I speak of myself as if I had passed from the world, for while I write this my grave is digging, and my name is written in the black book of death. Soon after my return to England, my only brother was seized with mortal illness. This circumstance gave me slight or no pain, for since we had been men we had associated but very little together. He was open-hearted and generous, handsomer than I, more accomplished and generally beloved. Those who sought my acquaintance abroad or at home, because they were friends of his, seldom attached themselves to me long, and would usually say in our first conversation that they were surprised to find two brothers so unlike in their manners and appearance. It was my habit to lead them on to this avowal, for I knew what comparisons they must draw between us, and having a rankling envy in my heart, I sought to justify it to myself. We had married two sisters. This additional tie between us, as it may appear to some, only estranged us the more. His wife knew me well. I never struggled with any secret jealousy or gall when she was present, but that woman knew it as well as I did. I never raised my eyes at such times, but I found hers fixed upon me. I never bent them on the ground or looked another way, but I felt that she overlooked me always. It was an inexpressible relief to me when we quarrelled, and a greater relief still when I heard abroad that she was dead. It seems to me now as if some strange and terrible foreshadowing of what has happened since must have hung over us then. I was afraid of her. She haunted me. Her fixed and steady look comes back upon me now, like the memory of a dark dream, and makes my blood run cold. She died shortly after giving birth to a child, a boy. When my brother knew that all hope of his own recovery was past, he called my wife to his bedside, and confided this orphan, a child of four years old, to her protection. He bequeathed to him all the property he had, and willed that, in case of his child's death, it should pass to my wife as the only acknowledgment he could make her for her care and love. He exchanged a few brotherly words with me, deploring our long separation, and being exhausted fell into a slumber from which he never awoke. We had no children, and as there had been a strong affection between the sisters, and my wife had almost supplied the place of a mother to this boy, she loved him as if he had been her own. The child was ardently attached to her, but he was his mother's image in face and spirit and always mistrusted me. I can scarcely fix the date when the feeling first came upon me, but I soon began to be uneasy when this child was by. I never roused myself from some moody train of thought, but I marked him looking at me, not with mere childish wonder, 
but with something of the purpose and meaning that I had so often noted in his mother. It was no effort of my fancy, founded on close resemblance of feature and expression. I never could look the boy down. He feared me, but seemed by some instinct to despise me while he did so, and even when he drew back beneath my gaze, as he would when we were alone to get nearer to the door, he would keep his bright eyes upon me still. Perhaps I hide the truth from myself, but I do not think that, when this began, I meditated to do him any wrong. I may have thought how serviceable his inheritance would be to us, and may have wished him dead, but I believe I had no thought of compassing his death. Neither did the idea come upon me at once, but by very slow degrees, presenting itself at first in dim shapes at a very great distance, as men may think of an earthquake or the last day, then drawing nearer and nearer, and losing something of its horror and improbability, then coming to be part and parcel, nay, nearly the whole sum and substance of my daily thoughts, and resolving itself into a question of means and safety, not of doing or abstaining from the deed. While this was going on within me, I never could bear that the child should see me looking at him, and yet I was under a fascination which made it a kind of business with me to contemplate his slight and fragile figure, and think how easily it might be done. Sometimes I would steal upstairs and watch him as he slept, but usually I hovered in the garden near the window of the room in which he had learnt his little tasks, and there, as he sat upon a low seat beside my wife, I would peer at him for hours together from behind a tree, starting like the guilty wretch I was, at every rustling of a leaf, and still gliding back to look and start again. Hard by our cottage, but quite out of sight, and, if there were any wind astir, of hearing too, was a deep sheet of water. I spent days in shaping with my pocket-knife a rough model of a boat, which I finished at last and dropped in the child's way. Then I withdrew to a secret place, which he must pass if he stole alone to swim this bobble, and lurked there for his coming. He came neither that day nor the next, though I waited from noon till nightfall. I was sure that I hid him in my net for I had heard him prattling of the toy, and knew that in his infant pleasure he kept it by his side in bed. I felt no weariness or fatigue, but waited patiently, and on the third day he passed me, running joyously along, with his silken hair streaming in the wind, and he singing, God have mercy upon me, singing a merry ballad, who could hardly lisp the words. I stole down after him, creeping under certain shrubs which grow in that place, and none but devils knew with what terror I, a strong, full-grown man, tracked the footsteps of that baby as he approached the water's brink. I was close upon him, had sunk upon my knee and raised my hand to thrust him in, when he saw my shadow in the stream, and turned him round. His mother's ghost was looking from his eyes. The sun burst forth from behind the cloud. It shone in the bright sky, the glistening earth, the clear water, the sparkling drops of rain upon the leaves. There were eyes in everything. The whole great universe of light was there to see the murder done. I know not what he said. He came of bold and manly blood, and, child as he was, he did not crouch or fawn upon me. 
I heard him cry that he would try to love me, not that he did, and then I saw him running back towards the house. The next I saw was my own sword naked in my hand, and he lying at my feet stark dead, dabbled here and there with blood, but otherwise no different from what I had seen him in his sleep. In the same attitude, too, with his cheek resting upon his little hand. I took him in my arms and laid him, very gently, now that he was dead, in a thicket. My wife was from home that day and would not return until the next. Our bedroom window, the only sleeping room on that side of the house, was but a few feet from the ground, and I resolved to descend from it at night and bury him in the garden. I had no thought that I had failed in my design, no thought that the water would be dragged and nothing found, that the money must now lie waste, since I must encourage the idea that the child was lost or stolen. All my thoughts were bound up and knotted together in the one absorbing necessity of hiding what I had done. How I felt when they came to tell me that the child was missing, when I ordered scouts in all directions, when I gasped and trembled at every one's approach, no tongue can tell or mind of man conceive. I buried him that night. When I parted the boughs and looked into the dark thicket, there was a glow-worm shining like the visible spirit of God upon the murdered child. I glanced down into his grave when I had placed him there, and still it gleamed upon his breast, an eye of fire looking up to heaven in supplication to the stars that watched me at my work. I had to meet my wife and break the news, and give her hope that the child would soon be found. All this I did, with some appearance, I suppose, of being sincere, for I was the object of no suspicion. This done, I sat at the bedroom window all day long, and watched the spot where the dreadful secret lay. It was in a piece of ground which had been dug up to be newly turfed, and which I had chosen on that account as the traces of my spade were less likely to attract attention. The men who laid down the grass must have thought me mad. I called to them continually to expedite their work, ran out and worked beside them, trod down the earth with my feet, and hurried them with frantic eagerness. They had finished their task before night, and then I thought myself comparatively safe. I slept, not as men do who awake refreshed and cheerful, but I did sleep, passing from vague and shadowy dreams of being hunted down, to visions of the plot of grass through which now a hand, and now a foot, and now the head itself was starting out. At this point I always woke and stole to the window, to make sure that it was not really so. That done I crept to bed again, and thus I spent the night in fits and starts, getting up and lying down full twenty times, and dreaming the same dream over and over again, which was far worse than lying awake, for every dream had a whole night's suffering of its own. Once I thought the child was alive, and that I had never tried to kill him. To wake from that dream was the most dreadful agony of all. The next day I sat at the window again, never once taking my eyes from the place, which, although it was covered by the grass, was as plain to me, its shape, its size, its depth, its jagged size, and all, as if it had been opened to the light of day. When a servant walked across it I felt as if he must sink in. When he had passed I looked to see that his feet had not worn the edges. If a bird lighted there I was in terror lest by some tremendous interposition it should be instrumental in the discovery. A breath of air sighed across it, to me it whispered murder. There was not a sight or a sound, how ordinary, mean, or unimportant soever, but was fraught with fear. And in this state of ceaseless watching I spent three days. 
On the fourth there came to the gate one who had served with me abroad, accompanied by a brother officer of his whom I had never seen. I felt that I could not bear to be out of sight of the place. It was a summer evening, and I bade my people take a table and a flask of wine into the garden. Then I sat down with my chair upon the grave, and being assured that nobody could disturb it now without my knowledge, tried to drink and talk. They hoped that my wife was well, that she was not obliged to keep her chamber, that they had not frightened her away. What could I do but tell them with a faltering tongue about the child? The officer whom I did not know was a down-looking man, and kept his eyes upon the ground while I was speaking. Even that terrified me. I could not divest myself of the idea that he saw something there which caused him to suspect the truth. I asked him hurriedly if he supposed that, and stopped. "'That the child has been murdered?' said he, looking mildly at me. "'Oh, no! What could a man gain by murdering a poor child? I could have told them what a man gained by such a deed. No one better. But I held my peace, and shivered as with an ague.' Mistaking my emotion, they were endeavouring to cheer me with the hope that the boy would certainly be found. Great cheer that was for me. When we heard a low, deep howl, and presently there sprung over the wall two great dogs, who, bounding into the garden, repeated the baying sound we had heard before. "'Bloodhounds!' cried my visitors. "'What need to tell me that? I had never seen one of that kind in all my life, but I knew what they were and for what purpose they had come.' I grasped the elbows of my chair, and neither spoke nor moved. "'They are of the genuine breed,' said the man whom I had known abroad, "'and being out for an exercise have no doubt escaped from their keeper.' Both he and his friend turned to look at the dogs, who with their noses to the ground moved restlessly about, running to and fro and up and down and across and round in circles, careening about like wild things, and all this time taking no notice of us, but ever and again repeating the yell we had heard already, then dropping their noses to the ground again and tracking earnestly here and there. They now began to snuff the earth more eagerly than they had done yet, and although they were still very restless, no longer beat about in such wide circuits, but kept near to one spot, and constantly diminished the distance between themselves and me. At last they came up close to the great chair on which I sat, and raising their frightful howl once more, tried to tear away the wooden rails that kept them from the ground beneath. I saw how I looked and the faces of the two who were with me. They sent some prey, said they both together. They sent no prey, cried I. In heaven's name move, said the one I knew very earnestly, or you will be torn to pieces. Let them tear me from limb to limb. I'll never leave this place, cried I. Are dogs to hurry men to shameful deaths? Hew them down, cut them in pieces. There is some foul mystery here, said the officer whom I did not know, drawing his sword. In King Charles's name, assist me to secure this man. They both set upon me and forced me away, though I fought and bit and caught at them like a madman. After a struggle they got me quietly between them, and then, my God, I saw the angry dogs tearing at the earth and throwing it up in the air like water. What more have I to tell? That I fell upon my knees and with chattering teeth confessed the truth and prayed to be forgiven that I have since denied, and now confess to it again, that I have been tried for the crime found guilty and sentenced, that I have not the courage to anticipate my doom, or to bear up manfully against it, that I have no compassion, no consolation, no hope, no friend, 
that my wife has happily lost for the time those faculties which would enable her to know my misery or hers, that I am alone in this stone dungeon with my evil spirit, and that I die to-morrow. Correspondence Master Humphrey has been favoured with the following letter written on strongly scented paper and sealed in light blue wax with their representation of two very plump doves interchanging beaks. It does not commence with any of the usual forms of address, but begins as is here set forth. Bath, Wednesday night. Heavens! Into what an indiscretion do I suffer myself to be betrayed! to address these faltering lines to a total stranger and that stranger one of a conflicting sex and yet i am precipitated into the abyss and have no power of self-snatchation forgive me if i coin that phrase from the yawning gulf before me yes i am writing to a man but let me not think of that for madness is in the thought you will understand my feelings oh yes i am sure you will and you will respect them too and not despise them will you let me be calm that portrait smiling as once he smiled on me that cane dangling as i have seen it dangle from his hand i know not how oft those legs that have glided through my nightly dreams and never stopped to speak the perfectly gentlemanly though false original can i be mistaken oh no no let me be calmer yet i would be calm as coffins you have published a letter from one whose likeness is engraved but whose name and wherefore is supposed shall i breathe that name is it but why ask when my heart tells me too truly that it is i would not upbraid him with his treachery i would not remind him of those times when he plighted the most eloquent of vows and procured from me a small pecuniary accommodation and yet i would see him see him did i say him alas such is woman's nature for as the poet beautifully says, but you will already have anticipated the sentiment, is it not sweet? Oh, yes. It was in this city, hallowed by the recollection, that I met him first, and assuredly if mortal happiness be recorded anywhere, then those rubbers with their three-and-sixpenny points are scored on tablets of celestial brass. He always held an honour, generally, too, on that eventful night we stood at eight he raised his eyes luminous in their seductive sweetness to my agitated face can you said he with peculiar meaning i felt the gentle pressure of his foot on mine our corns throbbed in unison can you he said again and every lineament of his expressive countenance added the words resist me i murmured no and fainted they said that when i recovered it was the weather i said it was the nutmeg in the negus how little did they suspect the truth how little did they guess the deep mysterious meaning of that inquiry he called next morning on his knees i do not mean to say that he actually came in that position to the house door but that he went down upon those joints directly the servant had retired he brought some verses in his hat which he said were original but which i have found since were milton's likewise a little bottle labelled laudanum and a pistol and a sword-stick he drew the latter, uncorked the former, and clicked the trigger of the pocket firearm. He had come, he said, to conquer or to die. He did not die. He wrested from me an avowal of my love, and let off the pistol out of a back window previous to partaking of a slight repast. Faithless, inconstant man! 
how many ages seem to have elapsed since his unaccountable and perfidious disappearance could i still forgive him both that and the borrowed lucre that he promised to pay next week could i spurn him from my feet if he approached in penitence and with a matrimonial object would the blandishing enchanter still weave his spells around me or shall i burst them all and turn away in coldness i dare not trust my weakness with the thought my brain is in a whirl again you know his address his occupations his mode of life are acquainted perhaps with his inmost thoughts you are a humane and philanthropic character reveal all you know all but especially the street and number of his lodgings the post is departing the bellman rings pray heaven it be not the knell of love and hope to belinda p s pardon the wanderings of a bad pen and a distracted mind addressed to the post-office the bellman rendered impatient by delay is ringing dreadfully in the passage p p s i open this to say that the bellman is gone and that you must not expect it till the next post and don't be surprised when you don't get it master humphrey does not feel himself at liberty to furnish his fair correspondent with the address of the gentleman in question but he publishes her letter as a public appeal to his faith and gallantry End of section 3